welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. We're up to the fourth story on the fifth day, on which our theme is lovers that persevered through adversity and whose love ended happily. Today's going to be a little bit different because I'm going to read one story and then I'm going to give you an extremely bitchy overview of four others that I am not willing to share in their entirety for reasons that will become apparent. But let's have the story first. Alyssa, falling silent, listened as her companions lauded her tale, and the Queen called upon Philostrato to tell his story. Laughing, he began as follows. I have been teased so many times, and by so many of you, for obliging you to tell cruel stories and making you weep, that I feel obliged to make some slight amends for the sorrow I caused, and tell you something that will make you laugh a little. Hence I propose to tell you a very brief tale about a love which, apart from one or two sighs and a moment of fear not unmixed with embarrassment, ran a smooth course to its happy conclusion. Not long ago, then, excellent ladies, there lived in Romagna a most reputable and virtuous gentleman called Messalizio da Valbona, who on the threshold of old age had the good fortune to be presented by his wife, Madonna Giacomina, with a baby daughter. When she grew up, she outshone all the other girls in those parts for her charm and beauty, and since she was the only daughter left to her father and mother, they loved and cherished her with all their heart, and guarded her with extraordinary care, for they had high hopes of bestowing her in marriage on the son of some great nobleman. Now, to the house of Messalizio there regularly came a handsome and sprightly youth called Ricciardo de Bernardi da Bretinoro, with whom Messalizio spent a good deal of his time and he and his wife would no more have thought of keeping him under surveillance than if he were their own son. Whenever he set eyes on the girl, Ricciardo was struck by her great beauty, her graceful bearing, her charming ways and impeccable manners, and, seeing that she was of marriageable age, he fell passionately in love with her. He took great pains to conceal his feelings, but the girl divined that he was in love with her, and far from being offended, to Ricciardo's great delight she began to love him with equal fervour. Though frequently seized with the longing to speak to her, he was always too timid to do so, until one day, having chosen a suitable moment, he plucked up courage and said to her, "'Caterina, I implore you not to let me die of love for you.' "'Heaven grant,' she promptly replied, "'that you do not allow me to die first for love of you.' Ricciardo was overjoyed by the girl's answer, and, feeling greatly encouraged, he said to her, "'Demand of me anything you please, and I shall do it.' but you alone can devise the means of saving us both. Whereupon the girl said, Ricciardo, as you see, I am watched very closely, and for this reason I cannot think how you are to come to me. But if you are able to suggest anything I might do without bringing shame upon myself, tell me what it is, and I shall do it. Ricciardo turned over various schemes in his mind. Then suddenly he said, My sweet Caterina, the only way I can suggest is for you to come to the balcony overlooking your father's garden, or better still, to sleep there. Although it is very high, if I knew that you were spending the night on the balcony, I would try without fail to climb up and reach you. If you are daring enough to climb to the balcony, Caterina replied, I am quite sure that I can arrange to sleep there. Ricciardo assured her that he was, whereupon they snatched a single kiss and went their separate ways. It was already near the end of May, and on the morning after her conversation with Ricciardo, the girl began complaining to her mother that she had been unable to sleep on the previous night because of the heat. 
"'What are you talking about, child?' said her mother. "'It wasn't in the least hot.' To which Katerina said, "'Mother, if you were to add, in my opinion, then perhaps you would be right. But you must remember that young girls feel the heat much more than older women.' "'That is so, my child,' said her mother. "'But what do you expect me to do about it? I can't make it hot or cold for you just like that. You will have to take the weather as it comes, according to the season.' Perhaps tonight it will be cooler, and you will sleep better. God grant that you are right, said Katerina, but it is not usual for the nights to grow any cooler as the summer approaches. Then what do you want us to do about it? inquired the lady. If you and father were to consent, replied Katerina, I should like to have a little bed made up for me on the balcony outside his room, overlooking the garden. I should have the nightingale to sing me off to sleep. It would be much cooler there, and I should be altogether better off than I am in your room. Whereupon her mother said, "'Cheer up, my child. I shall speak to your father about it, and we shall do whatever he decides.' The lady reported their conversation to Messalizio, who, perhaps because of his age, was inclined to be short-tempered. "'What's all this about being lulled to sleep by the nightingale?' he exclaimed. "'She'll be sleeping to the song of the cicadas if I hear any more of her nonsense.' Having heard what he had said, on the following night, more to spite her father than because she was feeling hot, Katerina not only stayed awake herself, but, by complaining incessantly of the heat, also prevented her mother from sleeping. I like her. So the next morning, her mother went straight to Mesolizio and said, Sir, you cannot be very fond of this daughter of yours. What difference does it make to you whether she sleeps on the balcony or not? She didn't get a moment's rest all night because of the heat. Besides, what do you find so surprising about a young girl taking pleasure in the song of the nightingale? Young people are naturally drawn towards those things that reflect their own natures. Oh, very well, said Messalizio. Take whichever bed you please and set it up for her on the balcony with some curtains round it. Then let her sleep there and hear the nightingale singing to her heart's content. On hearing that her father had given his permission, the girl promptly had a bed made up for herself on the balcony, and since it was her intention to sleep there that same night, she waited for Ricciardo to come to the house and gave him a signal, already agreed between them, by which he understood what was expected of him. As soon as he had heard his daughter getting into bed, Messalizio locked the door leading from his own room to the balcony, and then he too retired for the night. When there was no longer any sound to be heard, Ricciardo climbed over the wall with the aid of a ladder, then climbed up the side of the house by clinging with great difficulty to a series of stones projecting from the wall. At every moment of the ascent, he was in serious danger of falling, but in the end he reached the balcony unscathed, where he was silently received by the girl with very great rejoicing. After exchanging many kisses, they lay down together, and for virtually the entire night they had delight and joy of one another, causing the nightingale to sing at frequent intervals. Their pleasure was long, the night was brief, and though they were unaware of the fact it was almost dawn when they eventually fell asleep without a stitch to cover them, exhausted as much by their merry sport as by the nocturnal heat. Caterina had tucked her right arm beneath Ricciardo's neck, while with her left hand she was holding that part of his person which in mixed company you ladies are too embarrassed to mention. All right, then. Dawn came, but failed to wake them, and they were still asleep in the same posture when Messalizio got up out of bed. Remembering that his daughter was sleeping on the balcony, he quietly opened the door, saying, I'll just go and see whether Katerina has slept any better with the help of the nightingale. Stepping out onto the terrace, he gently raised the curtain surrounding the bed and saw Ricciardo and Caterina, naked and uncovered, lying there asleep in one another's arms in the posture just described. 
Having clearly recognised Ricciardo, he left them there and made his way to his wife's room, where he called to her and said, Be quick, woman, get up and come and see. If your daughter was so fascinated by the nightingale, she succeeded in waylaying it and is holding it in her hand. Oh, you've got to love the euphemism some of these stories use. <laughs> what are you talking about? said the lady. You'll see if you come quickly, said Messalizio. The lady got dressed in a hurry and quietly followed in Messalizio's footsteps until both of them were beside the bed. The curtain was then raised and Madonna Giacomina saw for herself exactly how her daughter had taken and seized hold of the nightingale, whose song she had so much yearned to hear. The lady, who considered that she had been seriously deceived in Ricciardo, was on the point of shouting and screaming abuse at him, but Messalizio restrained her, saying, Woman, if you value my love, hold your tongue. Now that she has taken him, she shall keep him. Ricciardo is a rich young man and comes of noble stock. We could do a lot worse than have him as our sign-in-law. If he wishes to leave this house unscathed, he will first have to marry our daughter, so that he will have put his nightingale into his own cage and into no other. The lady was reassured to see that her husband was not unduly perturbed by what had happened, and on reflecting that her daughter had enjoyed a good night, was well rested, and had caught the nightingale, she held her peace. Nor did they have long to wait before Ricciardo woke up, and on seeing that it was broad daylight, he almost died of fright and called to Caterina, saying, Alas, my treasure, the day has come and caught me unawares. What is to happen to us? At these words, Messalizio stepped forward, raised the curtain, and replied, What you deserve. On seeing Messalizio, Ricciardo nearly leapt out of his skin and sat bolt upright in bed, saying, My lord, in God's name have mercy on me. I know that I deserve to die, for I have been wicked and disloyal, and hence you must deal with me as you choose. But I beseech you to spare my life, if that is possible. I implore you not to kill me. Ricciardo, said Messalizio, this deed was quite unworthy of the love I bore you and the firm trust I placed in you. But what is done cannot be undone, and since it was your youth that carried you into so grievous an error, in order that you may preserve not only your life but also my honour, you must, before you do anything else, take Caterina as your lawful wedded wife. And thus, not only will she have been yours for this night, but she will remain yours for as long as she lives. By this means alone will you secure your freedom and my forgiveness. Otherwise, you can prepare to meet your maker. Whilst this conversation was taking place, Caterina let go of the nightingale, and having covered herself up, she burst into tears and implored her father to forgive Ricciardo, at the same time beseeching Ricciardo to do as Messalizio wished, so that they might long continue to enjoy such nights as this together in perfect safety. All this pleading was quite superfluous, however, for what with the shame of his transgression and his urge to atone on the one hand, and his desire to escape with his life on the other, to say nothing of his yearning to possess the object of his ardent love, Ricciardo readily consented, without a moment's hesitation, to do what Messalizio was asking. Messalizio therefore borrowed one of Madonna Giacomina's rings, and Ricciardo married Caterina there and then without moving from the spot, her parents bearing witness to the event. This done, Messalizio and his wife withdrew, saying, Now go back to sleep. You for you doubtless stand in greater need of resting than of getting up. As soon as Caterina's parents had departed, the two young people fell once more into each other's arms, and since they had only passed half a dozen milestones in the course of the night, they added another two to the total before getting up. And for the first day they left it at that. After they had risen, Ricciardo discussed the matter in greater detail with Messalizio and a few days later he and Caterina took appropriate steps to renew their marriage vows in the presence of their friends and kinsfolk. 
Then, amid great rejoicing, he brought her to his house, where the nuptials were celebrated with dignity and splendour. And for many years thereafter he lived with her in peace and happiness, caging nightingales by the score, day and night, to his heart's content. Well, friends, I should tell you that I don't read these stories in advance, in depth, as it were. I like to leave room for me to be surprised, as you have heard me be many times. I have, however, gotten into the habit of reading ahead a little bit and just skimming, and particularly my edition has a brief one or two sentence summary of each story at the beginning of it, which has been very helpful. I do like to look in advance because sometimes I come across stories that just, they do not bring joy. And while bitching is all very well, reading a story that is just depressingly awful is something that I'd rather not do. And so when I was preparing for this episode, I skimmed the story I just read you and went, that's great, that'll work. And then I skimmed the story and followed and went, hmm. And I looked at the story after that and went, hmm. And I looked at the story after that and went, hmm. So in our next episode, you will hear the ninth and tenth stories from the fifth day. Right now, you're going to hear me telling you why I'm skipping stories five, six, seven, and eight. So the fifth story involves a, a young woman who is adopted, whose parents are unknown, and is wooed by two men, uh, one of whom decides to press his suit by kidnapping her. The other guy happens to be there. They get in a fight. The matter is brought before a judge. And then they realize that the first guy who was going to kidnap her is actually her brother. I don't find that entertaining, so I'm not telling it. The sixth story, which we are also skipping, involves another woman getting kidnapped by pirates who, because they can't decide which of them wants to have her, decide to give her to the King of Sicily rather than argue about it. The King of Sicily is a little out of sorts and it happens that the girl's lover from home finds her before the king decides to press his suit, as it were. In these somewhat coercive circumstances, the girl sleeps with her lover, the king finds them, they're about to be burnt at the stake, and he gets persuaded otherwise based on who they're related to. Again, I don't find this entertaining. In the seventh story, a woman becomes pregnant from her lover, to the dismay of both of them. Interestingly, the story specifically mentions that she makes efforts she took various measures to frustrate the course of nature and miscarry, but all to no effect. The pregnancy is discovered, the lover is identified, he is sentenced to be killed, her father is horrible to her and almost has her killed, and almost has the baby killed, and luckily the long-lost father of the lover identifies him in time to use his influence to put an end to the whole thing so that the pair and their child are able to survive and live happily ever after. 
However, they went through such calamities that I just looked at that whole thing and went, Really? Is this supposed to be entertaining? The eighth story is uh, also uh, violent and unpleasant. The protagonist is in love with a woman who is not interested. And he happens to be wandering a forest where he encounters a mysterious vision of a dude hunting a naked woman down like she's an animal and tearing her to pieces with his dogs. Which, like, holy fuck, what the hell? As it turns out, this is that the two of them are not alive people. They are deceased souls in hell, and this is a whole thing that that happens. And they're basically their eternal punishment for him for suiciding her, for rejecting him and forcing him to suicide, supposedly, is that he hunts her down constantly and uh, and tears her to pieces with the dogs. And I'm just like, holy shit, what the fuck? Our protagonist, given this excellent example of what happens to women who reject men in the afterlife, decides to contrive things so that the woman he's in love with will see this spectacle and she remarkably changes her mind about them. I find this story not only gory, but also incredibly coercive in its, in its ending. And particularly with the really gross line at the very end, from that day forth, the ladies of Ravenna in general were so frightened by it that they became much more tractable to men's pleasures than they had ever been in the past. I don't find that in any way entertaining. At all. Whatsoever. And so I decided that it was better for me to skip all four of those stories, which is the largest number I've skipped in a row so far, rather than to tell them. Considering that my bitching took a relatively short period of time, I think I will actually squeeze in the ninth story, friends, so let's continue. Once Philomena had finished, the queen, finding that there was no one left to speak apart from herself, Dionea being excluded from the reckoning because of his privilege, smiled cheerfully and said, It is now my own turn to address you, and I shall gladly do so, dearest ladies, with a story similar in some respects to the one we have just heard. This I have chosen not only to acquaint you with the power of your beauty over men of noble spirit, but so that you may learn to choose for yourselves, whenever necessary, the persons on whom to bestow your largesse, instead of always leaving these matters to be decided for you by fortune, who, as it happens, nearly always scatters her gifts with more abundance than discretion. You are to know, then, that Coppo di Borghese Dominici, who once used to live in our city, and possibly lives there still, one of the most highly respected men in our century, a person worthy of eternal fame who achieved his position of preeminence by dint of his character and abilities rather than by his noble lineage, frequently took pleasure during his declining years in discussing incidents from the past with his neighbours and other folk. In this pastime he excelled all others, for he was more coherent, possessed a superior memory, and spoke with greater eloquence. He had a fine repertoire, including a tale he frequently told concerning a young Florentine called Federigo, the son of Messer Filippo Alberici, who for his deeds of chivalry and courtly manners was more highly spoken of than any other squire in Tuscany. In the manner of most young men of gentle breeding, Federigo lost his heart to a noble lady, 
whose name was Mona Giovanna, and who in her time was considered one of the loveliest and most adorable women to be found in Florence. And with the object of winning her love, he rode at the ring, tilted, gave sumptuous banquets, and distributed a large number of gifts, spending money without any restraint whatsoever. But since she was no less chaste than she was fair, the lady took no notice either of the things that were done in her honour or of the person who did them. In this way, spending far more than he could afford and deriving no profit in return, Federigo lost his entire fortune, as can easily happen, and reduced himself to poverty, being left with nothing other than a tiny little farm which produced an income just sufficient for him to live very frugally, and one falcon of the finest breed in the whole world. Since he was as deeply in love as ever and felt unable to go on living the sort of life in Florence to which he aspired, he moved out to Campi, where his little farm happened to be situated. Having settled in the country, he went hunting as often as possible with his falcon, and without seeking assistance from anyone, he patiently resigned himself to a life of poverty. Now one day, while Federigo was living in these straitened circumstances, the husband of Mona Giovanna happened to fall ill, and realising that he was about to die, he drew up his will. He was a very rich man, and in his will he left everything to his son, who was just growing up, further stipulating that if his son should die without legitimate issue, his estate should go to Mona Giovanna, to whom he had always been deeply devoted. Shortly afterwards he died, leaving Mona Giovanna a widow, and every summer, in accordance with Florentine custom, she went away with her son to a country estate of theirs, which was very near Federigo's farm. Consequently, this young lad of hers happened to become friendly with Federigo, acquiring a passion for birds and dogs, and having often seen Federigo's falcon in flight, he became fascinated by it and longed to own it, but since he could see that Federigo was deeply attached to the bird, he never ventured to ask him for it. And there the matter rested when, to the consternation of his mother, the boy happened to be taken ill. Being her only child, he was the apple of his mother's eye, and she sat beside his bed the whole day long, never ceasing to comfort him. Every so often she asked him whether there was anything he wanted, imploring him to tell her what it was, because if it was possible to acquire it, she would move heaven and earth to obtain it for him. After hearing this offer repeated for the umpteenth time, the boy said, Mother, if you could arrange for me to have Federigo's falcon, I believe I should soon get better. On hearing this request, the lady was somewhat taken aback, and began to consider what she could do about it. Knowing that Federigo had been in love with her for a long time, and that she had never deigned to cast so much as a single glance in his direction, she said to herself, How can I possibly go to him, or even send anyone, to ask him for this falcon, which to judge from all I have heard is the finest that ever flew, as well as being the only thing that keeps him alive? How can I be so heartless as to deprive so noble a man of his one remaining pleasure? Her mind filled with reflections of this sort. She remained silent, not knowing what answer to make to her son's request, even though she was quite certain that the falcon was hers for the asking. At length, however, her maternal instincts gained the upper hand, and she resolved, come what may, to satisfy the child by going in person to Federigo to collect the bird and bring it back to him. And so she replied, Bear up, my son, and see whether you can start feeling any better. I give you my word that I shall go and fetch it for you first thing tomorrow morning. Next morning, taking another lady with her for company, his mother left the house as though intending to go for a walk, made her way to Federigo's little cottage, and asked to see him. For several days the weather had been unsuitable for hawking, so Federigo was attending to one or two little jobs in his garden, and when he heard, to his utter astonishment, that Mona Giovanna was at the front door and wished to speak to him, he happily rushed there to greet her. When she saw him coming, she advanced with womanly grace to meet him, 
Federigo received her with a deep bow, whereupon she said, Greetings, Federigo. I have come to make amends for the harm you have suffered on my account by loving me more than you ought to have done. As a token of my esteem, I should like to take breakfast with you this morning, together with my companion here, but you must not put yourself to any trouble. My lady, replied Federigo in all humility, I cannot recall ever having suffered any harm on your account. On the contrary, I have gained so much that if ever I attained any kind of excellence, it was entirely because of your own great worth and the love that I bore you. Moreover, I can assure you that this visit which you have been generous enough to pay me is worth more to me than all the money I ever possessed, though I fear that my hospitality will not amount to very much. So saying, he led her unassumingly into the house, and thence into his garden, where, since there was no one he could call upon to chaperone her, he said, My lady, as there is nobody else available, this good woman, who is the wife of the farmer here, will keep you company whilst I go and see about setting the table. Though his poverty was acute, the extent to which he had squandered his wealth had not yet been fully borne home to Federigo, but on this particular morning, finding that he had nothing to set before the lady for whose love he had entertained so lavishly in the past, his eyes were well and truly opened to the fact. Distressed beyond all measure, he silently cursed his bad luck and rushed all over the house like one possessed, but could find no trace of either money or valuables. By now the morning was well advanced. He was still determined to entertain the gentlewoman to some sort of meal, and not wishing to beg assistance from his own farmer, or from anyone else for that matter, his gaze alighted on his precious falcon, which was sitting on its perch in the little room where it was kept. And having discovered, on picking it up, that it was nice and plump, he decided that since he had nowhere else to turn, it would make a worthy dish for a lady such as this. So without thinking twice about it, he wrung the bird's neck and promptly handed it over to his housekeeper to be plucked, dressed, and roasted carefully on a spit. Then he covered the table with spotless linen, of which he still had a certain amount in his possession, and returned in high spirits to the garden, where he announced to his lady that the meal, such as he had been able to prepare, was now ready. The lady and her companion rose from where they were sitting and made their way to the table, and together with Federigo, who waited upon them with the utmost deference, they made a meal of the prize falcon without knowing what they were eating. On leaving the table, they engaged their host in pleasant conversation for a while, and when the lady thought it time to broach the subject she had gone there to discuss, she turned to Federigo and addressed him affably as follows. I do not doubt for a moment, Federigo, that you will be astonished at my impertinence when you discover my principal reason for coming here, especially when you recall your former mode of living and my virtue, which you possibly mistook for harshness and cruelty. But if you had ever had any children to make you appreciate the power of parental love, I should think it certain that you would to some extent forgive me. However, the fact that you have no children of your own does not exempt me, a mother, from the laws common to all other mothers and being bound to obey these laws, I am forced, contrary to my own wishes and to all the rules of decorum and propriety, to ask you for something to which I know you are very deeply attached, which is only natural, seeing that it is the only consolation, the only pleasure, the only recreation remaining to you in your present extremity of fortune. The gift I am seeking is your falcon, to which my son has taken a so powerful a liking that if I fail to take it to him, I fear he will succumb to the illness from which he is suffering, and consequently I shall lose him. In imploring you to give me this falcon, I appeal not to your love, for you are under no obligation to me under that account, but rather to your noble heart, whereby you have proved yourself superior to all others in the practice of courtesy. Do me this favour, then, so that I may claim that through your generosity I have saved my son's life, thus placing him forever in your debt. When he heard what it was that she wanted, and realised that he could not oblige her because he had given her the falcon to eat, 
Federigo burst into tears in her presence before being able to utter a single word in reply. At first the lady thought his tears stemmed more from his grief at having to part with his fine falcon than from any other motive, and was on the point of telling him that she would prefer not to have it. On second thoughts she said nothing, and waited for Federigo to stop crying and give her his answer, which, eventually, he did. My lady, he said, ever since God decreed that you should become the object of my love, I have repeatedly had cause to complain of fortune's hostility towards me, but all her previous blows were slight by comparison with the one she has dealt me now, nor shall I ever be able to forgive her when I reflect that you have come to my poor dwelling, which you never deigned to visit when it was rich, and that you desire from me a trifling favour which she has made it impossible for me to concede. The reason is simple, and I shall explain it in few words. When you did me the kindness of telling me that you wished to breakfast with me, I considered it right and proper, having regard to your excellence and merit, to do everything within my power to prepare a more sumptuous dish than those I would offer to any ordinary guest. My thoughts therefore turned to the falcon you have asked me for, and, knowing its quality, I reputed it a worthy dish to set before you. So I had it roasted and served to you on the trencher this morning, and I could not have wished for a better way of disposing of it. But now that I discover that you wanted it in a different form, I am so distressed by it my inability to grant your request that I shall never forgive myself for as long as I live. In confirmation of his words, Federigo caused the feathers, talons, and beak to be cast on the table before her. On seeing and hearing all this, the lady reproached him at first for killing so fine a falcon and serving it up for a woman to eat. But then she became lost in admiration for his magnanimity of spirit, which no amount of poverty had managed to diminish, nor ever would. But now that her hopes of obtaining the falcon had vanished, she began to feel seriously concerned for the health of her son. And after thanking Federigo for his hospitality and good intentions, she took her leave of him, looking all despondent, and returned to the child. And to his mother's indescribable sorrow, within the space of a few days, whether through his disappointment in not being able to have the falcon, or because he was in any case suffering from a mortal illness, the child passed from this life. After a period of bitter mourning and continued weeping, the lady was repeatedly urged by her brothers to remarry, since not only had she been left a vast fortune, but she was still a young woman. And though she would have preferred to remain a widow, they gave her so little peace that in the end, recalling Federigo's high merits and his latest act of generosity, namely to have killed such a fine falcon in her honour, she said to her brothers, If only it were pleasing to you, I should willingly remain as I am. But since you are so eager for me to take a husband, you may be certain that I shall never marry any other man except Federigo. Her brothers made fun of her, saying, Silly girl, don't talk nonsense. How can you marry a man who hasn't a penny with which to bless himself? My brothers, she replied, I am well aware of that, but I would sooner have a gentleman without riches than riches without a gentleman. Seeing that her mind was made up, and knowing Federigo to be a gentleman of great merit even though he was poor, her brothers fell in with her wishes and handed her over to him, along with her immense fortune. Thenceforth, finding himself married to this great lady with whom he was so deeply in love, and very rich into the bargain, Federigo managed his affairs more prudently, and lived with her in happiness to the end of her days. And with that rather more pleasant story, I shall leave you. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.